but back to back. So they, I'm sure, changed that. But next, this year actually is a 13-month year, uh, which is one reason the feasts come a little earlier than normal. Usually it's more toward the middle of October. Anyway, it's after a week away last week, it's good to be back and stay in harness between now and the feast. We uh, have been doing a series on being a friend of God and God being a friend of us. And I finished that section on Abraham. Uh, There's so much in there about his character, his personality, and how he responded to God, which I think makes it very clear why God twice said, Abraham, my friend. Because Abraham was loyal, he was faithful, he was trustworthy. Uh, He could be trusted with anything that God gave, even his son Isaac. And after all that they had been through together, when he offered Isaac, finally God said, Now I know. And that would be a wonderful thing for him to say of each of us, Now I know. There's no question. I was just reading, I was kind of behind on reading the Berean from Church of the Great God being gone a bit, but uh, one came out on September 3rd. I guess that would have been Thursday. And uh, it was about Job. It written by John Reed years ago, but they'd republished it, I guess. And uh, all that Job went through and was listed as one of the three most righteous men of the Old Testament. Noah, Job, and Daniel are listed there in Jeremiah and Ezekiel as the three most righteous. And then I guess John the Baptist probably eclipsed even them because Christ didn't make a comment about him being the most righteous man uh, as a cousin of Jesus himself. But I thought that write-up was really worth reading. I sent it to my son, Matt, because his uh, wife, Amanda, of course, was in that terrible accident and almost died. And uh, she's recovering a little bit at a time. Uh, I guess I could give you an update. She's able to kind of wiggle some fingers now. And uh, they have a program there where she can... I guess with her eyes, somehow she can uh, text, send a text. And Matt was spelling out some stuff for her, and he screwed up some spelling, and it exasperated her apparently pretty badly because she'd never done any such thing, but she actually raised her arms and almost sat up. Just the, but it shows that the nerves are still there and they are reconnecting some. She's not been able to repeat that. I said, well, maybe you need to tick her off more often. <laughs> see, see if that'll get her moving. <laughs> At any rate, there is some improvement there. So uh, I think God's hand is very much in that, and I, I'm interested to see how it works out because they're 
the neurologist's latest uh, prognosis is that there may not be complete healing. Now, what that's all based on, I don't know, because before they said they expected it. So now they're backing off some. But uh, I do believe God's hand is involved there in bringing them back out of that pagan religion they were in and they were headed the right direction and then this happened and uh, I do believe God will use it maybe sometime in the future uh, for the good of his people I, I really think that might happen so I'm I'm watching it but there is there is improvement and just that one alone uh, was amazing <laughs> to everybody so, uh, I think our prayers are paying off, and she is improving. Anyway, uh, to get back into it today, I want to use one more example along these lines of friendship. Not so much as with God in this particular case, but with a couple of other individuals, because it's uh, emphasized in the Scripture. And we're going back to 1 Samuel 14 where the, uh, the story of David really gets started. Saul was already the king, and he had a son named Jonathan, who was apparently in the same generation, about the same age David was. And uh, this story is quite interesting. Uh, we will see here that Saul and David, I mean not Saul and David, Jonathan and David, became very, very close friends, as close probably as two human beings can be to each other. Uh, and it kind of started, I think, early. They had a lot in common. David had grown up taking care of the sheep, and he had killed the lion, he'd killed the bear, uh, basically with his bare hands. Uh, must have been a tough little guy. I've always pictured David as not too tall, but probably very stocky uh, and strong. Uh, and I don't know why I've thought of him that way particularly. Saul was tall, and David wasn't didn't stand out that way, so he certainly, I don't think, was above average in height. But he was strong as a bear, <laughs> Uh, obviously stronger than a bear when they his sheep were threatened. And, of course, then we know that even as a youth, he came in and killed Goliath and uh, was very brave, very strong, very powerful in his personality and very zealous about whatever he did. But Jonathan grew up under somewhat the same circumstances, as the king's son, he was trained very early in the art of war and grew up as a soldier, uh, grew up fighting uh, as he got old enough to do so. So he was an outdoors man as well as David was. And they came to have kind of a common enemy, <laughs> and that was Saul the king, Jonathan's dad, and David's friend and nemesis, depending on the day. 
so there was a lot of background there, and I want to start here in 1 Samuel 14 to give you an idea of that. Uh, the Israelites, of course, fought the Philistines off and on quite frequently, and it's only three chapters from here that David met up with Goliath and killed him. But a little background on Jonathan. They were having trouble with the Philistines, and Saul apparently was having difficulty figuring out what to do. So here it came to pass on a day that Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he didn't tell his dad. And Saul was tarrying in the utter, utter part of uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. And nobody knew that Jonathan was gone into verse 3. He just took the lad that bore his armor, and he was going to go over to the Philistines' house all by himself to their camp, just with this armor-bearer. So nobody knew that Jonathan had slipped out. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side. Uh, and it tells how they were situated. Verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. So you see, Jonathan had somewhat of a relationship with God and trusted him. Now, he didn't get, he didn't ask for an answer. He just said, Let's go, and maybe God will be with us. So he had a certain amount of faith there that the God of Israel would be with him. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn you, behold, I am with you according to your heart. Okay, he says, I'm in, let's go. So Jonathan said, Behold, we'll pass over to these men, and we will discover ourselves to them. We're going to go show ourselves to these Philistines. Now this gives you a bit of his approach and his courage. And it isn't long after that that David shows up and has the same kind of courage going up against a giant nine foot six inches tall. If they say thus to us, tarry till we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and, not, and will not go up to them. But if they say this, come up to us, then we'll go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign. If they, the Philistines say, come on, we want to talk to you, then that will be a sign from God that he's with us. That's the way Jonathan looked at it. And both of themselves showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. The Philistines were in their camp, had all their armor. They were probably in a, an almost impregnable position because if you set up a camp, uh, you make sure you have cover. You make sure you have a field of fire. Uh, you make sure that conditions 
are in your favor. Armies always do that. That's just, just the way you think when you're out there. You're going to be camping. You want to be camped where, <laughs> you know, you can't be attacked easily. But here are these two yahoos that come up there and say, Hey, the camp! They didn't even try to sneak in. Verse 12, The men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. Hey there, you come on! we got something to show you. Probably the end of a sword was what they had in mind, but... Uh, it was something to try to get them to come on up. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet. Now that tells you right there what I was saying earlier is true. It wasn't level ground. They had It was so steep to get up to where they were that he had to crawl on his hands and knees to get up it. That does not put you in a very good position to fight. And his armor bearer, with his armor on his back, was also on his hands and feet crawling up. Okay? Would you like to take his place? Do you have this kind of courage and faith and trust in Almighty God to do something like this? Good question. And his armor bear after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer slew after him. So just as he got up to camp, he must have stood up, and started wielding his sword and cutting Philistines into pieces. And then his armor bearer came in from behind. He had a sword also and slew after him. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about twenty men within, as it were, a half acre of land which a yoke of oxen might plow an area smaller than my chicken and turkey pen out here. And he slew about 20 men. Now, how many Philistines there were there? Who knows? But they got about 20 of them. And notice the reaction. And there was trembling in the host, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled. And the earthquake... So it was a very great trembling. Well, was God there? <laughs> Obviously. Scared the Philistines. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went beating down one another. They panicked so badly, they just ran and were beating on each other, thinking it was Jonathan and the armor-bearer, apparently, that was after him. Total confusion. And the men of Israel, in a distance, could see all these people, by the hundreds, maybe by the thousands. It was the people, it was the soldiers, the whole bunch that fled before them. <clears throat> then said Saul to the people that were with him, Number now and see who is gone from us. Who's causing all this havoc? 
And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. And then Saul talked to the priest and so on. And then on down here in verse 24, well, 23, the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over to Bethaven. The men of Israel, verse 24, were distressed that day, for Saul had adjured the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eats any food until evening, that I may be avenged on my enemies. So none of the people tasted any food. <clears throat> Saul took a, a path here that more people would have taken, maybe including you and me. He was afraid of the Philistines, so he said, Everybody fast till nighttime. Maybe, you know, God's not with us. Maybe we need to fast and ask for God's help. And all day of the land came to a wood, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people were come into the wood, behold, the honey dropped. It was dripping out of the trees, apparently, and onto the ground. <clears throat> but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan, he'd been gone, killing Philistines, heard not when his father charged the people with the oath. Wherefore he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand, and dipped it in a honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes were enlightened. He felt better, he felt perkier, and he understood, apparently, more what was going on. So it was a good benefit. <clears throat> then answered one of the people and said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man that catches any food, eats any food this day. And the people were faint. They were afraid. They were scared. <clears throat> then said Jonathan, My father has troubled the land. See, I pray you how my eyes have been enlightened because I tasted a little honey. How much more, if perchance the people had eaten freely to the day of the spoil of their enemies, which they found? For had there not been now a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Here you were fasting, and I was fighting. Dad was wrong. We prevailed, and if you'd have been there, would have killed a lot more of them. <laughs> so he went against his dad here, purely and simply. And God had been with him. Is there a time to go against the government? You know, we're adjured in Romans 13 that generally speaking, we should get along with the rulers of the land the best we can. But there comes a time when they are fighting God and they're fighting against God and there is a time to go against the rulers of the land. I am not going to do what people who openly worship Satan tell me to do in this land. And a lot of the democratic leaders are open or openly Satan worshipers. And I am not going to do what they tell me to do. Obey God rather than man. If there's any question, 
about what they're asking you to do, and it's ungodly, you do the godly thing. So, yes, within reason, and generally speaking day to day, get along with the government the best you can. But when they go against God, you're free to disobey them. And here Paul, uh, Saul, <clears throat> as the context will ultimately show, did not often follow God. Partly he did and partly he didn't. Anyway, uh, the people uh, jumped on the spoil that the Philistines had left behind, the animals and everything. Uh, verse 37, Saul asked counsel of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he answered him, Not that day. God didn't give an answer to Saul. Saul didn't wait for the answer. Saul decided he'd just go do it. Let's see, let's go on down a little bit. They cast lots. Well, let's pick it up in 38. Saul said, Draw you near hither, all the chief of the people, and know and see wherein this sin has been this day. He thought that there had been some sin involved, and it may have been sin against what he had claimed. For as the Lord lives, which saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. Made that statement. But that there was not a man among all the people that answered him. Nobody was going to rat out Jonathan after what had occurred. Then said he to all Israel, Be you on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, That seems good, do it. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot, and Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. So the problem was between somewhere those two men that Saul was having difficulty with. Everybody else was out. And Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I did but taste a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, and lo, I must die. You said it. King said it. Kill me. Cut my head off. Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. So for that small infraction, Saul was going to kill his son. And Jonathan stood firm, just like he had against the Philistines. Stood firm against his dad. Said, okay, dad, go ahead and kill me. And the people said to Saul... Shall Jonathan die, who's worked this great salvation in Israel? God forbid. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, that he died not. I think that's a very 
interesting story that the people stood up and had, had Saul gone ahead himself, nobody else would do it. Had Saul gone ahead and lopped Jonathan's head off, I do believe that those people would have killed Saul on the spot. They had stood up that strongly against him for Jonathan's sake. So what this establishes is a very powerful character and personality that Jonathan had against the Philistines and against his own father. Well, we could read more here, but uh, I want to move on forward and not spend too long a time on this. Chapter 17 is about David and Goliath, who stood up and said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, that sounds like something Jonathan would have said, doesn't it? Just with what little we read about Jonathan here. Anyway, he killed him, and uh, and then David took, let's see, I'm in chapter 17, verse 54. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his own tent. So David grabbed the head, which was a pretty good-sized head, and weighed quite a bit, actually. And when Saul saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the captain of the host, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I, I don't know. And the king said, Inquire those whose you whose son the stripling is. And as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, you young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And when this ended, this speaking, uh, the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. Two heroes met right there. And Jonathan fell in love with him. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. They were like kind, so much alike. And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. Now there is what God wants of us. We are to love him more than our own soul. Love him more than we love ourselves, okay? And he wants us to come to love each other as much as we love ourselves. Here we have an example of that. He loved him as much as he loved himself, as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his garments, even his sword and his bow and his girdle. He stripped himself naked even down to his girdle, which is 
like underwear, only more so. Gave it all to David. Now here he was, the prince, son of the king, who was in line to be the next king. And he saw what David had done, and he was so much of his own heart and mind and character and personality that he just immediately fell in love with David and took off his royal garments, the prince's garments, his robe, and all his weapons of war and gave them to David. David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. But then there was a problem. David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines in verse 6. And in verse 7, the women answered one another as they played music and danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Rut row. <laughs> Here's the problem. <laughs> Saul did not appreciate hearing the women sing that. Suddenly David became an enemy. David became someone that Saul was very jealous of. It says in verse 9, And Saul white-eyed David from that day and forward, looked at him askance. He kept his eye on him. Uh, he was afraid of him. He was afraid of the competition he might bring. And it came to pass the next day that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied in the midst of the house. <coughs> and David played with his hand as at other times. And there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin for he said, I will smite David to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. And Saul was afraid of David because the Eternal was with him and was departed from Saul. So God had sent a hero in David, and God intended him then to become Saul's successor as the king. And Saul rejected David because of jealousy. And because of his attitude of jealousy, which is an ungodly attitude, God cursed Saul and put a demon on him. But the Spirit of God was with Saul and continued with Jonathan. Evil spirit God allowed to take hold of Saul. And after that, he tried to kill David. That's a strange deal there because Saul was quieted from his demonic state by David's playing of music. We won't go into all that, but uh, he could bring peace to Saul that he could receive no other way. And then, at times, his jealousy would come up, so he'd try to pin him to the wall. Here again, Dave's pretty, David's pretty courageous guy. I don't know whether I'm going to get thanks for playing music tonight or whether I'm going to get a spear thrown at me. He just didn't know each night as he came to the table. But he kept coming to the table because Saul had enlisted him as one of his favorites after Goliath. 
And David was a hero to Israel, and Saul was not the same hero. Now, Jonathan was also a hero to Israel after what he had done and how they had protected him. So these two became very close. Then other things happen, and uh, all down here, verse 23, Saul's servant spoke those words in the ears of David. David said, Seems it to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing that I am a poor man and lightly esteemed. And the servants of Saul told him, saying, On this manner spake David. And Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires not any dowry, but a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Uh, so this, I guess, is where David wanted to marry Michael, Saul's daughter. And uh, he says, Well, I won't ask a dowry. Don't bring many horses and cows, but I want a hundred foreskins. So he had to slay them and circumcise them and bring the bag to Saul. <laughs> there were some pretty brutal things went on back in those days. Think next month and the month and the month after that here in America. It's coming. Coming soon. But Saul had something else in mind. He thought, if I require a hundred foreskins... Uh, it says in the verse, end of verse 25, Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. He's going to try to get him killed. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David's well to be the king's son-in-law. So he says, okay, I'll do that. David got up and went and his men and slew of the Philistines 200 men. So he brought double the foreskins and gave them in full tale to the king, that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, to wife. Saul saw and knew that the Eternal was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was yet the more afraid of David, and Saul became David's enemy continually, always after him, trying to kill him. And anyway, David had to flee because of Saul. Uh, he tried to pin him to the wall again in chapter 19, verse 10. But he slipped away out of Saul's presence. And the javelin went in the wall. He, so he escaped. Now, Jonathan and David, of course, were close. And then they made a, uh, a covenant between them. Let's go to chapter 20. And he, he asked Jonathan, What's your, why is your try, father trying to kill me? He said to him, verse 2, God forbid you shall not die. Behold, my father will do nothing, either great or small, but that he will show it me. And why should my hi father hide this thing from me? It is not so. So Jonathan tells him, uh, I'm going to know what dad's attitude is. He'll let me know. So I'm going to know. And David swore, moreover, and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found grace in your eyes. He says, You mean he's going to tell you? Because he knows you and I are close. And he says, Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. He says, Let's, let's face reality here. 
I'm not far from death. Then said Jonathan to David, Whatsoever your soul desires, I will even do it for you. I know you're in a tough spot. I got your back. I'll do anything for you. And that was because of that love that he had as his own soul. He loved David as much as he did himself. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king at meat. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field to the third day at even. Maybe he'll cool off in three days if he's trying to kill me. And then they made a deal uh, where after three days, Jonathan would come out in the field with his bow and he would shoot arrows. And he told David, if I send the boy after the arrows, then it's safe. But if I say, ah, the arrow's too far, forget it, go away, then David, you better go away. So they did this, and Jonathan, by the way he shot and told the kid, uh, that there was still danger. And let's see, then it, I think it reaffirms down here somewhere the, the feeling that was between them. I, my eye doesn't fall on that particularly. But let's see. Is there one more? Yeah, Second Samuel 1. Let's go over there just a moment. Second Samuel 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites. Now, Jonathan and David, I mean, Jonathan and Saul were both killed. And David talks about it. Verse 17, David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. Also he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He says, The beauty of Israel is slain upon your high places. How are the mighty fallen? Speaking of Saul and particularly Jonathan. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. So, he didn't want the Philistines to even know this had happened. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away. The shield of Saul is though he had not been anointed with oil. Well, now remember when Saul did die shortly before this, there was a young fellow there who saw him dying, and Saul wanted to fall on his own sword, and the kid helped him. And then he went to tell David about what had happened, and he wanted to take credit as his own ego and vanity for killing Saul. Now, he didn't say it quite that way, but David understood the attitude of the young fellow. And he said, how could you kill the anointed? 
And he cut his head off right there for what he had done. So after all that David had been through with Saul, he still respected the office and respected the man for what he was. So verse about verse 22, From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. They both died valiantly in battle. And he says, Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives. So David was not being judgmental of Saul for trying to kill him over and over again for condemning him, for being jealousy of him, and hating him. He was non-judgmental. He set that all aside and only remembered the good. Isn't that incredible? Here he had been Saul's enemy continually, we just read. Always trying to kill him. When it comes to the eulogy here, David doesn't say a word about any of that. Just the good of Saul. What a, what a strong character and personality. That's like God, isn't it? God looks for the good. God tries to find good. He minimizes the evil. He even tells us there in Philippians 4, 8, don't look at the evil. Look at the good. Find the good. Do everything you can to find a positive spin on people. How can you love them as your own soul if you're looking for their faults, their mistakes, their sins, their failings? You don't do that with you. You try to put a good spin on you, don't you? You know you make mistakes. You know you sin. You ask God to forgive you, and you try to put a good spin on you as an upstanding Christian. Hypocrite. Why not do the same thing with your brother and sister? Overlook the wrong. Overlook the bad. Isn't God going to have to do that with us and put it under the blood of our Savior? And forget all about it and never mention our sin to us again? How often do we mention someone's sin again? How often do we mention what they've done to us and how bad they've been to us? How often do we think it and put them down in our own minds? Instead of forgiving and loving and looking for the good in them. You know there's some good in every one of us. We have the Spirit of God. That's good. We do some good things, don't we? I don't see anybody here that's all bad. Do you? I don't see anybody here that's lying, stealing, murdering, fornicating, adulterating, uh, breaking the Sabbath. Sure, we all, to one degree or another, break the Ten Commandments in one form or another every day. In some form or another, we do. But we're not outwardly sinning. I don't, and I don't go around trying to see who's sinning today. 
I don't care. I mean, I care, but I, it doesn't matter. I'm not looking for sin. I'm looking for righteousness. I'm looking at people who are trying to obey God and serve Him with their hearts. That's what I'm looking for. And you know, basically, as I sit here, I'm looking at them. Everyone here would not be here whatsoever unless they were in some form or another and to some degree or another trying to serve God. You came here to serve God. You gave up. Every one of you. Jobs, homes, friends, family, places you might have liked to be to come here in this waste howling desert, if you will. <laughs> been that way this summer for sure. More so than any year we've been here. Hot and dry. Nobody gave up any more than anybody else. We all gave up things. Some of you have lost mates here, and I have. It's not all been fun and games. We're here to serve the living God. Every last one of us. And don't you for a minute think there's anybody here who is not here to do that. Because I'll guarantee you, if they weren't here for that, they wouldn't be here. They wouldn't be listening to this. If for no other reason. The Word of God is strong. The Word of God is powerful. And it cuts like a two-edged sword everywhere it is wielded. Why does it cut? Because we haven't lived up to it. If you lived up perfectly to everything here, we could swing this sword of the Word anywhere we wanted to, and it wouldn't cut anybody. Nothing to cut, because everything's right. But the reason it cuts is because there's wrong. David is setting an incredible example here of true Christianity. A man after God's own heart. He made some mistakes. But look at his heart here. To stand up and praise a man who had been trying to kill him. Day in and day out. Can you do that? Or do you pigeonhole somebody as, they're that way. They're this way. They'll never be any different. They're bad guys. God forbid anybody have that kind of an attitude. God forbid. I think I'm beginning to see here just reading this. Why David will be king over all Israel in the kingdom of God. In spite of whatever mistakes he made. God forgives those and he looks at the character of the man overall. Yeah, did he screw up with Bathsheba? Yeah. He had several wives. And she kind of did that to him, you know. Here was the king's palace, and there was the courtyard, and there was probably a wall there. 
And David would go out and look at the city and watch the sunset maybe at night. And she got on top of the house to take a bath. And she was close enough that he could tell she was good looking and well built and all the above. So she seduced him. And it wasn't apparently too hard. And he invited her up. And you know the rest of the story. So, yeah, he made a mistake under pretty severe circumstances. God forgave that, even though he killed a man's husband. I mean, the woman's husband. God did cause the first child that came to them to die. So there was some punishment. And David understood it. But look at the character of the man even then. He knew that a decision was coming down on whether that child would live or die. He fell on his face and fasted until the child died. And when he heard the servants sort of murmuring in the background, he knew that there was news. He knew the child had died because they wouldn't have been whispering and trying to figure out who's going to tell him. You know? Who's going to tell him? Scared him to death. Maybe if I tell him, he'll jump up and hack my head off. I don't know. He'd done it in the past. So they were afraid. So they began to whisper. So David got up, took off his sackcloth, if he had any on. I think he just fell on his face probably as he was dressed to fast. When he knew God's decision had been rendered, that the child was dead, he got up and went on about his business. And people said, why aren't you in mourning? Well, why should I mourn? It's God's decision. He decided. I deserved it. I'm going back to work. What incredible character and power in his personality. What he did, he did with his might. If he was killing Philistines, he'd kill 10,000. If it was worshiping God, he did it with all his heart. If it was seeking an answer from God, he fell on his face and fasted until he got his answer. What a man. What a man. In spite of whatever problems he had. So then he said of them, I'll read it again in verse 23, Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. Now there had been a rift between Saul and Jonathan. And Saul had tried to kill Jonathan. And they didn't get along all the time. But David overlooked that. They died with the blood of the Philistines on each other. They were fighting side by side and back to back. And as they hacked the Philistines apart, there was Philistine blood that went on both father and son as the head came off and the blood spurted out the neck. So the blood of the Philistines were on both of them at once. And that's the way they died together. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Almost makes me cry to read that. To desire to be that kind of man. 
that kind of Christian, that kind of follower of God, that he could say this after all that had transpired. It's incredible. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. These are the ones that had sung. David's killed his ten thousands and Saul his thousands. And he said, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. The wealth that you have is because of Saul and because he delivered you from the Philistines. So he said, be thankful for what Saul has done for the nation. Then he says, how are the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? David respected Saul and Jonathan for standing up against the Philistines and fighting to the death because he'd been there, done that. Didn't die, but he'd been in the same position. Can you see how Jonathan and David loved each other? Wow. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? Oh, Jonathan, you were slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? How could this be, O Jonathan, my beloved, my brother? Now, David loved his wives. He loved Bathsheba. But he said the love toward Jonathan was even greater than a man could love a woman, which is beyond my comprehension in some ways. Because God designed a man and a woman as husband and wife to love each other that much as your own soul, willing to die for one another. David and Jonathan were willing to die for one another. Now, we in the human realm marry. Some probably have the, that kind of love equally between them. But probably more often than not, one loves more than the other. Uh, they're just human. But these two loved each other so much that it was as much as their own flesh. And he says so right here in his eulogy for especially Jonathan. He admired the works of both, but at the end, his love for Jonathan prevailed at the end of this eulogy because it had been so much greater and powerful than that between he and Saul. So if you're looking for the kind of friends that David and Jonathan were, if you're looking for the kind of friends that God wants, what more can be said? This is it. This is the epitome of the second commandment, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Those two accomplished it before even the Spirit of God came upon them the way it has us. 
prior to that. Now, David did have the Spirit of God. Jonathan seemed to be motivated by God and worshiped God. But they weren't begotten in the same way that we are today. And yet, they achieved what Christ told us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to do. And there where he said, there's only two commandments. Love God above everyone and love your neighbor as yourself. That's as tall an order, as high a standard as it is possible to make. Everything else falls underneath that in order. There are lots of different scriptures about love, a lot of different scriptures about personal relationships, everything about living as a human being is in this book. But those two sum it up and stand above it all. And here we have an example of two people who did just that. I have no doubt that Jonathan and David would have died for each other. No doubt, based on what we've just read. Well, it's almost ten after, and that's such a powerful story. I think we'll just stop there for today. That's, that's a lot for us to chew on right there.